You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Welcome to Digital Noise. We are here for more reviews of the home releases that have been put in front of our faces. I'm here with John Golson. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing good. Man, I'm so proud of you. You just put on your own show. I know. It's so exciting. Tell, tell people what the, like, so you do improv type stuff. Yeah. But this one is the scripted sketch comedy Yeah, thing. most of what I do is, is scripted sketch stuff. Uh, improv, I, I do improv occasionally, but most of what I do is write and perform sketch or, or perform in other people's uh, sketch shows. And yeah, and so on a whim, I threw my hat in a ring and pitched a show that is uh, a bunch of sketches stitched together by um, placing the audience on kind of a theme park dark ride that they travel from place to place uh, as a sketch, uh, as, as the uh, people, the, the hosts of the dark ride kind of search for a sponsor for the ride. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that was the, 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 so it's like a, like a, a pitch. Like the audience is the people being sort pitched. of. It's called uh, unnamed corporate sponsor presents voyage to the center of the middle, <laughs> and along the way that the kind of um, what do they call it when you have an anthology and it has the uh, the framing device. Uh-huh. Yeah, the framing device are these theme park employees who are basically like giving people the spiel on the ride and also crossing their fingers for. Um, some of uh, you know somebody to come pick up the show, uh, That's pick up the ride. Such a great idea, so, um, and it played out really well. We had our first show last Tuesday, uh, last Thursday. I've got another one coming this Thursday. Uh, it was about half full, and and again, the audience really liked it. So it was a nice, uh, nice little confidence boost and a nice um, weight off my shoulders too, because you know I'd never been in that position before. I'm not organizational by nature, and I think that was the biggest challenge was for me to stay on top of. Organizing things was that was certainly the thing that required the most brain power. I'm excited to see it. I hope that our second performance is just as good. I'm also fetishistic about uh, theme park stuff. I don't know why. Somewhere early in my days, theme parks have this weird sort of like dark mystery about them. Like there's always that part of you that's like, but but what's going on behind the scenes Yeah, that both feel sort of creepy and entrancing. Like I go to Disney as often as I can. And yet every time I'm there, there's a part of me that's totally happy as hell. And there's a part of me that's actually kind of creeped out. <laughs> so I kind of like the idea of this. Yeah. It's uh, it, it came together really well. And the framing, you know, I, the framing worked like it, it worked. I was happy. It was one of those things. It's like you, uh, you know, trying something for the first time and then standing back and going like, Oh, okay. Like this, this succeeded. Like, I, yeah. I'm a happy man. I'm very proud of you, sir. Thank you. But we are here to review home releases, and let's just get jump jump right into it with How to Train Your Dragon 3, which does not have that 3 in the title, but it is, in fact, the third How to Train Your Dragon film, The Hidden World. I did not get to see this in the theater because it was streaming. It was uh, screening the same night as another 
film and it was one of those divide up your staff and I went to see whatever the other movie was that night. I don't remember what it was, but I was very disappointed that I didn't get to see this because I genuinely treasure the first two films in the series was like, this is, although this is DreamWorks animation, I think that this is maybe the only American company, like big company animated film series that I would put up with next to Pixar as far as pure quality. And I was really looking forward to this third one. So I'm glad I finally got a chance to see it. They sent it out on 4K. And while I would argue that I think that to some degree this is the weakest of the three, that's not really a cut against it either. It's still a really genuinely gorgeous looking and fun to watch movie. Yeah, it's a sweet little movie. Yeah, I mean, I saw you posting about it on Facebook after watching, going, "Oh my god, this is so sweet." Yeah, they're 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 good. <laughs> they're really good, and this is a nice, you know, it's it's very much. This one feels very designed to be a trilogy, uh, and and kind of close it out. And it was a nice little capper. Um, you know, I think the conflict here is probably the weakest of the three movies. Here you have kind of like a. Um, uh, he's sort of a big game hunter who is trying to trying to bag him one of every single kind of dragon that's ever existed. Yeah, voiced by F. Murray Abraham, who's yeah. kind of playing a a dark universe version of of Jay Baruchel's main character of Hiccup, yeah. in a way. Sort of, I can see that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so it it follows Hiccup and it follows Toothless, and you get to see all the old friends from the first two movies and that sort of thing. Um as they try to take all the dragons to a mythical dragon sanctuary while they're being sort of chased down by this, uh, by this big game hunter. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's really wonderful. It's, it, it is of a piece with the first two. Um, it really concludes the trilogy in a very satisfying way. And, uh, and honestly, it may be underrated as a fantasy film series. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like it has, uh, Pretty good bona fides as like a um, as an animated movie series, but I think I think this one as it as I was watching this one, I was kind of like, you know, honestly, this stands shoulder to shoulder with some fantasy movies. Like I get oh, that yeah. it's an animated comedy, but it really stands with like it, some other it, some yeah with the genre of fantasy in general. Built its mythology in a really smart and fun way. Especially in the sense that they know this is indeed an animated series, that kids are going to see this, but they keep building new breeds of dragons that are in here and all their idiosyncrasies and why those are interesting. The characters that were introduced in the second film all appear here as well, and they're evolving those characters. I mean, there's a huge cast at this point by the third yeah. one of people and and name actors voicing these characters that, like, to some extent they want to do more with, but ultimately this is the story uh, of, once again, Hiccup and his dragon, Toothless. I think more than the first two, the the secondary characters really take a backseat. They do. And I think that may be part of the problem here, um, but the real issue that most people have commented on is that the villain is just a plot device. Like, he's not really that interesting as a character, and the movie clearly isn't that interested in him. Yeah. Uh, it's about moving on. It's about doing the right thing. It's about, like, going, like, growing up. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and maybe to some extent, I'm not a father, but like letting you knowing when it's okay to let your kids go and do their own thing, which in this case is Jay Baruchel's character hiccup with Toothless when he meets a, a, uh, a light fury who is a, a almost disturbingly sexy version of his breed. <laughs> Sorry, I, maybe I watched this revealing too much. I'm just saying she's kind of hot as dragons go, and uh, and that the, like they've got like their whole sort of I don't know if meat cute is the right word because it takes a while. It's, it's a like mate cute. It's yeah, it's a mate cute. It's when you put two cats together, like you've had a cat for a while, and then you introduce a new cat into the house, and it takes a while. Mm. The, I mean, because these. Like they try to put dog stuff in here, but ultimately they're cats. I'm sorry, they're totally both based on cats. The the the, the, the toothless is, and it's that experience of watching them slowly warm up to each other and then eventually becoming friends. Which I guess I've been there a couple times for. So on cue, my cats start fighting right next to me on the couch. Yeah. But uh, I really appreciated that part of it. But. Part of the big appeal here is just this is just so gorgeously animated. It's just so filled with detail and love. It's it's just nice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really just good. pleasant to watch. I never found myself I mean, outside of elements of like I said, criticizing the fact that the villain is just there to get us from point A to point B, like for there to be a background, for there to be an antagonist. It doesn't really matter by the end. I was just like, yeah, that was just, that was almost relaxing to watch. <laughs> yeah. In a vaguely, not in terms of the style of animation, but in a vaguely almost Studio Ghibli sort of way. That is just so pretty and atmospheric and just like so filled with like a depth of like people who genuinely care about each other. And a, and a thematic similarity to, uh, to, uh, Miyazaki as well in that it's, reverent to the natural world yeah and and sort of the order of the natural world which is a theme that comes up in all the Miyazaki films and that's definitely evident here too agreed uh of course like most big release animated films that do well there's a giant slew of bonus features here including the the two short films which I just by act like just fucked up and did not watch I meant to there's two dreamworks shorts Bilby and bird karma uh, that are attached here um, I think they screened with it theatrically I'm not really sure but I did did you get to watch those I did not watch the short I didn't watch okay. any of the special features on it well there's an alternate opening uh, which is basically very early developmental stage version with optional commentary by the writer director Dean D- Dubois. Uh, there's nine and a half, nine and a quarter minutes of deleted scenes here, which actually one of the things I did watch and I did enjoy. And there's a bunch of like little but entertaining EPKs that I thought were pretty cool. This is a solid pack, and on 4K, I will tell you flat out, this is just entrancing and a, almost a showpiece uh, release for 4K. Yeah, I'd agree. I actually. Uh, I don't have a 4K player, but I wanted to watch it in 4K. So I actually, even though you gave me the disc, I rented the 4K. Did you really? Yeah, I rented the 4K because I wanted to see it that way. So, All right, so our next one is another Hollywood major release, which is Isn't It Romantic? Uh, this is now out on Blu-ray with the, the accompanying DVD and digital version. This is uh, a Rebel Wilson starring romantic meta-comedy. And I found myself very going into the theatrical review and we reviewed this very like prepared to be negative. And in the end, although I think this is nowhere near on the same level as what's the one I'm thinking about with James Marsden and Amy Adams, uh, 
uh, disenchanted. Mm-hmm. It's not at the same, which is a, a total like, or is it disenchanted? It's just enchanted, I think, right? Uh, the the one where she's the Disney princess. Yeah, yeah. yeah it enchanted. comes to the real world. That was a I thought near flawless takedown of the romantic comedy and a lot of these like romantic ideas. But that was more related to the Disney what about animated they came world. Together? Did you see they came together? No, with Adam Scott. And, I'm aware uh, of it. Amy Poehler. It, well, that was on Netflix, and I oh, remember man. saying I should watch this, yeah. and I had not. That's sort of in the vein of like uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, but for romantic comedy. Okay, so I should watch all to them. Well, so they're trying to do that here, yeah. and I think. This movie suffers, if anything, that it's not dedicated enough to its premise, but boy, it does occasionally really land, like, the jokes that they want to land. You and I have been doing this show now off and on for a couple years, and this might be the first time, because I can't, I really can't think of another time that we've disagreed completely on a movie. Oh, so you hated that. I did not enjoy this at all. And part of it was that they tick off the parody stuff at the beginning and then check those off like boxes. Yeah. And it was, it robs the movie of any comedy to me. There's a scene early on at the beginning where she's like, oh, you want, you mean my life could be like one of those romantic comedies where X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three. And she just lists a bunch of tropes. And then literally the film fulfills each one of those tropes like a checklist. All right. So that was... It was infuriating. That was my complaint when we reviewed this film. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, no, that's the biggest problem with this movie I is like that killed the comedy. she early on goes to appear like it's a five minute scene it where she goes through and you like a baby through what the tropes like, of a romantic comedy as, are. as if you've never as if like it's audience who's going to see this aren't already aware of all these tropes there was no need and i felt like there was a lot of that through the movie of sort of like what this is just like a romantic comedy and it's like yes that's the premise of your freaking movie yeah like you don't have to keep Going back to that, you don't have to keep explaining it to me. I also thought that she was, um, she was, she's, uh, she's kind of unappealing in this as well. I did not, I didn't really enjoy Rebel Wilson in this. Um, I mean, I feel like they overall treated her better than some of her other projects had been uh, on the whole. Like, I mean, other than Pitch Perfect, which I think she was perfect casting for. Here, I actually genuinely enjoyed watching her in this. The problem's not her. The problem is those idiosyncrasies in the script where they feel like their audience is stupid. And so they need to tell them everything. And I think the argument from everyone else during a review is, yeah, but the audience is stupid. I'm like, you know, there's lots of smart people who like romantic comedies. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's, like, fair at all. Um, yeah. It over-explains. But there was a point that I ended up getting a little charmed by it anyway. Anyway, so the premise, and I'm not going to go overboard because you can always listen to the highly suspect reviews here. So, um, uh, she plays a character who grew up like really disliking romantic comedies because they presented the world in a very unrealistic light. Uh, and she's just feels kind of disgusted by the idea. Cause she's like all too aware the real world's not fair and stuff like that doesn't happen. And of course something happens that ends up putting her into like she bangs her head, which is the most generic way you could do it. Yeah. And ends up being in a world that's a fantasy universe in which 
she is a character in a romantic comedy where like the super ridiculously handsome dude, uh, who like in real life was coming in, like the billionaire who's coming in to make a deal with her company that she is about like on the verge of a promotion to be something bigger with, but doesn't have the confidence to, to go for it. Like that guy suddenly is like, you're so wonderful and charming, which is of course played by Liam Hemsworth. Any given Hemsworth would have done, but <laughs> you know, Liam, which is, uh, Hemsworth, um, the, the second, mm-hmm. you know, he's not a Chris Hemsworth, but he's just below it. Right. You know, he's almost there. In fact, he also auditioned for Thor and almost got it, uh, which I just found out recently, interestingly enough. But anyway, so she's got like the, the, the best friend at work played by the, the growing on me, Adam Devine, one of those guys who started off doing sketch comedy stuff and slowly has been appealing to me more. At first, I didn't much care for him, but now I'm starting to actually like him who, who can variate between the romantic interest or the gay best friend, and here he's the 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 clearly supposed to be the one she's supposed to be with in the film romantic interest. And there's the the neighbor who is uh, initially just like kind of a just a fuck off drug dealer guy, like pot smoker guy in the building who. Um, ends up in her fantasy world being the generic gay friend who I thought was one of the most clever parts of the film who she's regularly going, you realize you're setting back like gay rights, like a hundred years right now, just by the nature of you being such a cliche, which I thought was quite funny because that's one of the things that even today, romantic comedies are still doing with no sense of irony. And it was nice to see somebody call that out. Like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Not every gay guy is like, Oh girl, you go. Yeah. I, I also, I think my problem with her in this is that, and it's a little bit of a casting thing. I don't think that she had chemistry with either of the male leads. And I think the movie, I, th- I think the way this movie is constructed, she needs chemistry with at least one of them. Um, and she doesn't have it with either of them. And I don't think that's, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. I don't know. I don't disagree with that. I, I, I felt like the movie might have been better if there was somebody on screen that she actually kind of maybe crackled with more. But, uh, but yeah, this wasn't, uh, oh, and the this go- wasn't my cup of tea. The gorgeous and talented Priyanka Chopra who has proven that she's a solid actress and certainly one of the most beautiful women in the world who plays a, a role here as somebody who's like this sort of competitive love interest in the fantasy world there, who is really given nothing interesting to do here. Like almost sad. I'm watching this. I'm like, why wasn't she playing the sister in, uh, of the, uh, I'm blanking the name of the character in the good place. Who's like the successful oh, always yeah. do right sister. It seems like she would have been perfect for that part. You know, introduce her in the cousin of the fourth season. I'm just saying, but I don't know. I, I found this mildly charming. I and, found it uncharming. <laughs> fair, this fair. is the, yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's ever been a film where you liked it. And I straight up did not. Well, there are four, uh, Deleted scenes coming to six minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, there is a four minute and 33 second of I want to dance because there's a, uh, like obviously dancing and singing stuff because Rebel Wilson's in it and she is indeed a really talented singer and dancer. Like genuine. I mean, like if you watch the pitch perfect movies, that becomes very clear that like, Oh my God, that big girl can sing and dance, which unfortunately has been used all too much as that juxtaposition of like yeah like that should make you feel like that's funny but she's genuinely talented uh i actually thought the karaoke scene in here was really charming with her but i don't know anyway there's not a lot extra here 
Obviously, it's a mixed bag and as far as response. What are you going to do? You know but, what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the uh, John Candy movie Delirious, where he's hit on the head and wakes up in a soap opera. I've never actually watched that yeah, one. I'm aware it, of it. It reminded me a lot of that, where it's... it. Yeah, and, and that movie's no better than this one, other than it's John Candy, but... Well, let's go on to our next one, which is going back to 1993, and I figured since we're talking romantic comedies, we'll talk about a John Cusack film, even though this is not, in fact, one of his romantic comedies. I mean, 1993 feels like it was still the, the high point, to some degree, for like like he was in peak form. We didn't know who Philip Seymour Hoffman was at the time. Right? We didn't know who Benicio Del Toro was. We didn't know who... Uh, there's a third There's a third face in there. Um, who are we missing? Oh, gosh. There was somebody else at the bar where I was like, oh, that person ended up being like a big star. I can't think of who. Um, maybe I am just thinking of Benicio and, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Michael Rappaport's the other. Right. But this is Cusack trying to go, like, no, I can do more serious stuff. Yeah. Well, but it's still a comedy. Okay, but it needs to be more serious. Money for Nothing was largely ignored when it came out in theaters. Yeah. yeah well, I, the, it's a true story yeah. about a guy who picks up uh, millions off the back of an armored truck. I mean, literally, um, that whole, it fell off the back yeah. of a truck. I mean, in this case, it did. Yeah, <laughs> and and the guy, you know, tries to figure out what he's going to do with this money because it's certainly money that he could use, um, and it creates a moral dilemma for him. The movie, the movie sank at the box office because the real life person committed suicide two weeks before the release of the I film mean, in theaters. I'm not which sure. Put a real damper on, I think, the promotional aspect. I'm not sure film. that's why it sank, but it didn't help. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I, I I think that's one of those things where whatever blitz, whatever marketing blitz they had to have John Cusack go on the Tonight Show and Today's Show and Letterman and all that kind of yeah. stuff probably sank like a stone, I would imagine. But, yeah, he plays this character, Joey Coyle, and he's a very... Um, what is it? This is Boston, right? Like South Boston. Is it Boston or is it Philly? Is it Philly? I think okay. it's Philly. But he has a character that feels like yeah. he's out of it's a East Dennis Coast. Lehane yeah. script. You know, it's he is poor. He's not happy working about being docks. poor. He's working the docks. Yeah. He's he, and even then, his brother, played by a young James Gandolfini, who is the the head dock worker, doesn't always pick him because. Gandolfini's determined everything being fair and right and doesn't want nepotism to enter into it, which doesn't make Cusack feel any better who's struggling to make ends meet. And himself is kind of at a dead end, really. He's drinking too much. He's partying too much. He's still regretting breaking up with his ex-girlfriend, played by the lovely and memorable Debbie Mazar, who should have been in more stuff and more popular than she was. Yeah. Um, and... When he and his best friend, Michael Rappaport, come across this literally a, a, a broken down, uh, like, like a badly put together, uh, what's not money truck? What is it? A, a armored, armored car, car yeah. where a, a bags of money fell off the back. He, he's like, Oh, I'm taking this shit. And Michael Rappaport's like, No, I'm sorry, but this is going to go wrong. I mean, he's the Cassandra of the film. He's like, No, 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 this will not work out. But John Cusack's like, Fuck that. And wants to make this work. But of course, he ends up making all the mistakes that you would expect someone to make, like flashing his money around too much and what have you, uh, getting in with the mob to some degree with Benicio de Toro playing a lovely l- early role as sort of like a local, yeah. like shady guy who's like, well, it's the one shady guy I know and we're kind of friends. So I'll, I guess I'll go to that guy and see if maybe he can help me like w- uh, launder this money so I cannot get caught with it. Uh, 
Uh, we've also got uh, Michael Madsen as the detective who is surprisingly affable in this part, uh, who who is trying to track down what's going on, but but also is fighting against City Hall <laughs> and and the, the corrupt company, bank company. There's a lot of very generic aspects to this movie, but I think on the whole, this is kind of an enjoyable watch. I, I liked Cusack in this an awful lot and all the effort that he's putting into this performance to sell it, like using that Cusack charm from the 80s and 90s, but in a very different way than I, I think anyone was used to seeing him do. But I think maybe that was part of the problem. It was a very different type of role. This is trying to be more layered and trying to be a more complex character. And yet, on the whole, the script isn't that surprising or different from things that had happened before it that are much better. Yeah, it's kind of middle of the road. And I think that if I think that a couple years later, this would have been a different movie because Tarantino would have exploded. Yeah. And it would have, it would have colored this movie probably with just the right amount of both humor and grit that it needs because it really doesn't have either. Um, it's ostensibly a comedy, but it's not particularly funny. And I would never call it a crime thriller, even though because it's not funny, that's sort of where it lands. But even then, it's not that. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, it's very middle of the road. I don't know that it's particularly successful at any of the flavors that it's trying to get across. The story itself is kind of interesting. And again, there is like a parade of actors who would become very, very famous later in the 90s or even the 2000s. You know, it uh, got even his mom, uh, Fianola Flanagan, yeah. who ended up becoming much more recognizable after her role in Lost, mm-hmm. playing like a, a big sort of nefarious villain character in there, but has been in a ton of movies. Yeah. But this was an early recognizable American release role for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fine. It's um, <laughs> it's not Faint praise. Yeah, that's that's my that's my go to. I, I just don't think it hits any of its targets. And um it ends up being kind of a little bit of a curio of what what crime thrillers were like in the early '90s before Tarantino hit big. Although that you know Scorsese was making them as well, um, this just kind of has fallen by the wayside. And honestly, maybe maybe for good reason. But again, if you're if you want to see some early, if you want to see pre usual suspects, Benicio del Toro. If you want to see. Uh, um, Pre gross point blank, John. Cusack. Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman I before think. people even knew his name. Oh, that's right. Um, he does, in fact, play the uh, sort of one of the doofy guys in the bar. Yeah, there's a lot of familiar character actors that appear yeah. in the in the local bar. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 worth watching for that. It's the kind of movie. It's the uh, it's the Sunday afternoon caught it on cable didn't change the channel masterpiece. <laughs> well, next n- next up we're going to Korea, and I know don't 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 back away because this isn't a really disturbing horror film. This is not like a gritty cop threat film. This is kind of an oddball South Korean film called Swing Kids, not a remake of the American film. Although actually, now I think about it, I think that was a British film, uh, but. This is a adaptation of a musical that played on stage in Korea that is All right, so I love musicals. I really genuinely love musicals. Uh there I don't love all of them. I'm that one guy who still goes I think Rent is deeply overrated and not very good. Yeah. And people get mad at me. I never saw Rent. Uh, I won't get mad at you. Not a fan. But or, or anything by Android Lloyd Webber except Jesus Christ Superstar. But I'm like ready for a good musical and 
I can totally see, despite what we were saying, you were saying earlier, like why they were like, we're not going to push this real hard in America because this is got all the elements of a great musical, but it throws in so much shit that no one would ever put into an American release musical because it's either really disturbing or it's deeply political or it's just odd as fuck to be here at all. The premise of this film, Swing Kids, we're talking about um, a Korean War prison camp in 1951, uh, which is right on the border of North and South Korea. And so we're following a bunch of like prisoners that are in here, most notably uh, uh, Ro Ki-su, who is a rebellious North Korean soldier who is famous already when he gets there because his older brother has kind of looked at this almost iconic war hero people talk about in whispers like oh that guy he's, he's a legend you're his brother oh my god then I guess you're a legend by connection but he comes in here and he ends up falling into a group a situation with an American soldier uh, played by apparently top dancing sensation on Broadway Jared Grimes who's like was considered to be like is considered to be one of the great greatest tap dancers alive today. I had no idea until I watched this, which makes me feel bad because I'm a big tap dance fan. Uh, Gene Kelly, he's my dude, <laughs> um, who's like been in a hard to even explain scenario. Has been told you need to set up a a, a show for people using our prisoners dancing and singing. Improbably, so you need to teach these be people to be able to do what you do, tap dance. Because in the in the context of the film, this character whose name is Jackson, oh, and they never say his first name, but his ID says M Jackson, not the last of the American pop culture references in Mitchell the film. Jackson, <laughs> but uh, like was a Broadway star before he got drafted into the Korean Matthew War. Jackson. <laughs> Matthew Jackson, Matthew Jackson, yes, <laughs> and um, so. He ends up with him, who is like the one guy who's like, I don't even want to be here, man, but ends up with a deep passion for tap dancing and a real skill for it with a, uh, uh, a lady who is got some, who speaks multiple languages and starts as a translator, but ends up having a real skill for this as well with a Chinese guy, uh, who is like really into this. <laughs> Like, just yeah. wants to dance. I'm honestly kind of shocked that this movie didn't go with the whole he's the bigger-than-life gay guy because it felt like that's where it was going with him. But they didn't, and I was grateful for it. But it felt like he's that character who would have been that in the American production of this. You know what I mean? And a uh, – oh, God. Who is the last one? Uh, who am I missing? There is a, a man who's separated from his wife. Right. Who isn't sure what has happened to her, uh, and so he's kind of biding his time dancing simply to take his mind off the fact that he has no idea what's happened to his wife. And this is kind of structured around them, like, alternately trying to make this work and alternately with a lot of political stuff going on between, like, these groups who, like, these people all don't like each other who are Mm -hmm. dancing because of political reasons, because this is that point where America had been coming in and going, communism is terrible, like, and it, it's evil and it must be stopped. And some of the like, Koreans are totally a thousand percent behind this. And some of them are like exactly the opposite. And then there are people coming in from the outside. And I'm not sure that stuff works great. But when this movie is singing, well, not even singing, really. When this movie is dancing and is about the joy and the love of this and is getting into magical realism, I was having the time of my life watching it. 
It's very, very good. And you love us, the shit out of a it. A lot of us missed the boat, I think. Uh, you know, it's it's a movie that's coming out now on home video, and it should have been a more talked about foreign release in 2018. It apparently was released in mid-December uh, theatrically, and it, it felt all but ignored. I had never heard of it when you when. I, you handed it to me. I, I thought it was the old one from the 90s. I didn't realize they'd even made another one. And I was watching yeah. it, and it's like... I told you it was South Korean yeah. one, and you gave me that look that's like, ah, fuck. Because <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be like a... I thought it was going to be a, a remake. Um, yeah. And it's not. It is its own thing, and it is... Uh, it is... I thought really, really good. You basically have this main character. What, what's his name again? Ro... Rokisu. Rokisu. Uh, kind of the cock of the walk. Um, there is a clear cultural divide where they're not supposed to associate with Yankees, and he falls in love essentially with the tap dancing. And then, as the communist forces within the within the encampment start to um, come together, have secret meetings, uh, begin to plot things. That's really where a lot of the conflict comes. Is sort of like him weighing his desire to honestly just go out and dance versus how entrenched in this socio-political stuff do I want to get? If there's something I didn't like about the movie, it was it's what to me culturally, maybe I'm different as an American than a Korean, but I think that message of like, can't we just all get along? Having individual political beliefs sucks. Felt naive. I was like, this feel, yeah, exactly. I thought that's a really immature way of looking at the world, but Movie's grandly entertaining, just so entertaining, and it is bittersweet. It is, it is bittersweet. It, it, it's I think, tragic. <laughs> I think halfway, th- it, it really front loads all of its energy into making you understand the joy of dancing. So that I think it wants to put you in his shoes, so that when that's kind of removed from the scenario, you want to draw back there. You want to come back there, and it felt to me like a structural decision to really make you empathize with him in a different way because now we've moved on in the story from that. Don't you want to go back there? Don't you want to go back there? Right. And that ends up being the pull. Um, the movie. Yeah. At some point the movie's like, Oh, by the way, please don't forget this is wartime. These are POWs and addresses those things as seriously as it can within sort of the world that's already created for itself. Uh, I, I really liked this. And if we have a pick of the week, this is definitely mine. Well, we always have pick of we the always, week. This is my pick of the week. I'm not sure if it's mine or not yet. We'll have to get to the end, and then I'll, Uh-oh, I'll did decide. I, did I blow my load? Hold yeah. on. <laughs> where's the stack? Hold it up real quick. Um, no. I, I, I agree with you in that this is unexpected as hell. It keeps you guessing. It's a crowd pleaser, it. too. I it's mean, a it, crowd it's, pleaser. It is bittersweet. But it is still a crowd. Once again, I think Bittersweet does not put it firmly enough. <laughs> this is deeply tragic movie. Yeah. It's, I was genuinely upset in the last 15 minutes of this film watching it. Like, like not at the film, but like with the events that happened, like I found myself tearing up and very like, holy shit. Like I said, there's stuff that happens in this movie that would never happen in an American musical and stuff that feels uh, very anachronistic for the musical setup as we know it to be. But Speaking it is South of, Korea. 
How about that Bowie needle drop, man? Dude, there's like a, a – all right, so talk about anachronistic. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. like – the music is all totally from all over the place. And there's a modern love dance sequence. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, and it also is juxtaposing two characters doing their own thing that's very, like, emotional. Like, both of them have their own emotional reasons for dancing while – why they're dancing the way they are in two separate places that are, like – are, are clearly trying to compare the two things. That's amazing. But I can't say I wasn't pulled out of it a little bit by the fact like, wait a minute, oh, this man. is 1951. I loved it. I loved it. I loved that part. It, it, it was not, it, it was not bad. It just took me a second. That's all. There's no extra features here, but Hey, what are you going to do? Um, I do think swing kids is well worth your time checking out. If you're even mildly a musical fan. Yeah. Next up is the Unity of Heroes. I'll be honest, I this reminded me of watching films in the 80s when I was first discovering kung fu movies. And that, as it turns out, is entirely intentional. Not only is the Unity of Heroes a Wong Kar Wai story who is like the star, the, the real-life uh, late 19th century, early 20th century legend of China who has had... If I'm not mistaken, I don't think I am. More movies made about this character oh, than uh, any character in film Wong history. Wong Fei. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I said Wong Kar. Oh, Wong Kar. Uh, I said Fei, Wong Fei Hung. Wong Fei Hung. Yes. Yeah. Real life person. Drunken Master is about him. Once Upon a Time in China is about him. The Grandmaster is about. I mean, literally, there's like there was a television show that had like 300 episodes about him. Like a lot. And this movie is. Wanting to remind you of that period in the late 80s, early 90s, when this was kind of the heyday of that type of martial arts film. And I'm not sure it's as, it's not as good as the best of them, no question. But I think overall, it's pretty entertaining, even though weirdly, it kind of wants to be a Mr. Vampire film at the same time, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Yeah, it's got this weird supernatural type of like element to it, like with like, People were like a guy, like evil. Amer- okay, first yeah. off, every Chinese film that comes out right now has a subtext of Americans are bad, and I'm not saying that as an American politically. I'm just telling you, like, I, it's been so overt that you can't miss it lately. So there's shit going on, <laughs> even like, and now we're getting movies from China thanks to companies like WellGo that are coming out the same year they come out in China here, and so you're like, oh, I. Y- y- so this is actually very timely and this is very overt with like Wong Fei Hung is playing a, he's like, he's not old, but he's like just before middle age maybe. And he's an established master. The whole town is deeply in respect with this guy. And he's a little uncomfortable with the Americans and Europeans coming in and setting up this hospital there uh, that supposedly are setting up a thing to help people who are treating opium. And his problem is like, yeah, you guys are the ones who brought opium here in the first place. So not sure I entirely trust where you're coming. And it makes it more complicated when uh, a former love of his has reappeared in the town. And he's like, obviously, like it's. It's the most awkward part of the film, but at the same time, that's it's kind of like I don't know, awkwardly sweet. <laughs> Where he's yeah. like, even though he's so good at what he does and he's the unquestioned ma- grandmaster, when he's around her, he just kind of fucks up and doesn't really know how to do anything right. And she's been very Americanized, she's been living in America for like a decade or something. 
and is there to help with the hospital and is totally in defense of these people, what's going on. Uh, he's got three students who work under him, and this is where we get into the Mr. Vampire part of it, where it's like they're dealing with these people running around the town who've been given this drug that have basically turned them into supernatural, like, super powerful zombies for all extensive purposes. And, uh, like, with, like, like CG veins going up through their neck and everything, and he's teaching his, you know, competent, but slap dash, uh, slapstick students how to deal with the scenario. And it's very Mr. Vampire. So it's trying to being both once upon a time in China and Mr. Vampire at the same time slapped together, but with the fighting visual style, like the comedy and the, the, the style of shooting fight scenes of all those films at the time. And I found myself thoroughly charmed by this thing. Um, we haven't seen a movie that was shot like this uh, in a really long time. And that part of me that this is the me that discovered martial arts movies from China and fell in love with them was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do yeah. this. You ever see uh, Alien Nation? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. That's what it, it was like. The super drug. An alienation that was like they would drink the detergent and then it was like PCP to them and you could like hit them a hundred times they would just keep coming. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like what the stuff is. It's like it's like uh, it, you know it's what people perceive PCP to be when you take PCP that you're like oh you're an unstoppable zombie. Yeah, it has right. these like horror movie drug fiends in it. Um, this movie was uh, it was corny and silly. Um, I. I, you know, and uh, my, it, it kind of has sort of a light touch throughout, even in the fighting I thought was really light. Like I wasn't used to seeing a martial arts film where the fights felt oddly low impact, like stuff sort of floats or hovers before it like hits someone in the face. And it's it not to the particularly degree, like bone breaking. It was sort it's of, it's not to the degree of Wusha. Yeah. Um, but it's still, there's some degree of like, they don't want it to be brutal ever. Yeah. It feels know? like it may be, I, I don't know in China, if this was intended for a younger audience, it kind of felt that way at times. Um, not, not really my cup of tea, but I can certainly see why someone would like it. Uh, it just wasn't my jam. It was a little too, uh, if it walked up to the line of corny, it would often put its toe right over it for me. Oh, and so, I don't yeah. disagree with any of that. This is decidedly a nostalgia piece yeah. for people who love this era of Chinese martial arts films. I mean, like, not even subtly at all like tying into like taking stuff from all these different popular things at the time and mashing them together and it's not as good as the best influences but for people who were looking for that fix that they kind of miss as the way that that industry has evolved into a very different beast mm. it was very pleasant for me yeah i wouldn't begrudge anybody their enjoyment of it yeah uh and the star of this thing god what is his name um Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. I, I had this in front of me earlier, but uh apparently the guy who plays Wong Fei Hung is played that character in the Once Upon a Time in China television series for years. 
Like, so this is not his first experience playing this character, oddly enough. Uh, and n- another thing that's like nostalgia driven, like, oh, that was like two decades ago. But now they brought him back to do it again. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't, as much as I've seen a lot of the movies from this period in China, I certainly have not, I mean, we've never had access to the television shows. Is, so. it, is it the character Jet Li plays in Fearless? I can't remember. I remember that character. I don't. And he looks like that on the poster. And so, think he's Wong Fei Hung in there. It's been a long time since I saw Fearless, so I don't remember. It's one of those movies I probably should get back around to because I remember it being quite good. I haven't seen. Uh, Then we have Slayground. Look, guys, if you are familiar with Richard Stark's Parker novels, which you are, you just don't maybe don't know that you are. Because uh, there's been certainly a number of great adaptations, like what was it, uh, uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, uh, and then of course most famously, God, what is the one I'm thinking about with uh, uh, the guy from Hobbs and Shaw, uh, Jason Statham? Oh, Parker. Yeah, yeah, that was just called Parker. Parker, yeah. and then the one with Mel Gibson, Payback. Payback, which is the best of them. I, th- I hate to say that about a Mel Gibson movie at this point, That's but all right. that movie I can watch over and over again and just go hubba hubba. <laughs> It's great. But there were some really great recent comic book uh, versions of him by the sadly departed Dar- uh, Darwin Cook. Made great adaptations, including he did this one, Slayground, which is the 14th novel uh, of the series. Uh, Donald Westlake, who was much better known under that name as a mystery and mystery comedy writer, Richard Stark was a pseudonym for him. This was kind of an oddball movie in the series of of film. I mean, it's not a series, but adaptations of him. 1983, Peter Coyote playing the role, although he's known here as uh, just Stone, I believe, instead of Parker. It's an odd little near horror film. It starts strong. So there's these these three... Uh, small-time crooks, including Stone, um, who are going to go rob this armored car, and on their way back from robbing it, they have a, uh, a fatal accident with a, a millionaire's uh, daughter, and she dies in the accident. That guy then hires an assassin to take out these uh, these three guys, and Stone ends up hightailing it to England. Um, and trying to connect with people from his past and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's a movie that certainly starts with a lot of promise and it doesn't really maintain its energy after kind of the initial setup. I think, I think almost, almost everything, and it's early on too. I think, I think after about 20 minutes where it kind of like establishes everything, it really starts to lose steam from there. Yeah. And scenes almost have a weird, disjointed, disconnected feel, like the way that it's written and edited. Um, scenes sort of feel like they don't uh, feed into each other in the way that we normally expect. Like, oh, here now he's with this woman who we've just now met, and we're like 45 minutes into the movie, and now he's doing this. And like even him going to England, he's just kind of in England. Yeah. You know? Um, and ultimately it really, it really fizzles out by the end. It's, um, I mean, I did feel like it had some fun third act man with the golden gun type sequences. There's kind of a cool shootout in a, in an actual amusement park. Um, but I, it just, to me, it never captures sort of the energy or the intrigue of the opening. I think the opening sets it up and you're like, you, you may, the opening kind of lets you feel as if you're about to watch a minor classic. 
like, oh, what is this? Is this some unsung gem I'm watching? It also has such a great title. <laughs> then a little ways into it, it's kind of like, oh no, this is this what? is sort of it's it's a serviceable early '80s crime. It wastes movie. so much time with trying to like like the, the, with him in England of like reconnecting with these people only who are killed one by one yeah. by this guy in a way that like it can't figure out what kind of movie it wants to be like it like to some degree feels like and I have not watched all the trailers from this but it feels like they probably tried to sell it as a slasher movie or something almost where like this guy one at a time is creepily murdering all these people he knew I want to say when I saw the because I started watching this Sometime last year, and I think I might have watched the trailer. And if if memory serves, the trailers were cut like an early '80s or late '70s Bronson film. Okay, well, like, like that kind. I of... I guess that's not wildly surprising yeah. either. But I I found this thoroughly mediocre, um, but an interesting little for people who are interested in this character in the Richard Stark novels. Probably don't even know this movie fucking exists. I didn't. Yeah. Until Kino offered it, I was like, oh, wow, there's another fucking Parker movie? I had no idea. I, I thought I had seen them all. Apparently not. Here we go. Here's Peter Cowdy, who, in fact, the one new thing with this release is there's a brand new interview with, with the actor mm-hmm. about the film, which is kind of cool that they got that for this. But yeah. I, I just, this is deeply underwhelming with, I thought, some interesting stuff in the third act, but nothing that... Like, it's not on the level of Man with a Golden Gun, with the sort of, like, shootout, like, chase through a funhouse thing. Like, that was so much better. <laughs> this is okay. Certainly a real... I don't know if that was a real funhouse or if they built the stuff for the movie, but it's fucking creepy, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we have The Andromeda Strain. Now, I know a lot of people are going to go, that sounds familiar, why do I know that? Well, Michael Crichton, who say what you will about him, was one of the biggest influences on uh, fiction in his period and as well on, on, on genre film. I mean, like, he is a... Uh, you can't talk about even modern film culture and where we've gone without bringing Michael Crichton into the discussion at some point because he was just that big of an influence, whether we're talking about the fact that HBO has a Westworld series or they keep making Jurassic Park series. Both of them evolved off of him. But The Andromeda Strain was the first novel he ever wrote, and it was a monster success when it came out. In fact, even... um uh, I just let me see if I can find this. Yes, uh, 2003 publication by the Infectious Disease Society of America noted that the Andromeda Strain, as a movie, is the quote most significant, scientifically accurate, and prototypic of all films of the killer virus genre. It accurately details the appearance of a deadly agent, its impact, and the efforts of in containing it, and finally, the workup on its identification and clarification on why certain persons are immune to it. Now, if that sentence made you feel tired, well, to be fair, you might feel a little tired watching The Andromeda Strain, (laughs) because it is entirely a procedural virus film. Yeah. What would happen if a virus came along that... What like came from a uh, a, a uh, I believe it was like a, a crashed part of a satellite um, that had a that was part of a investigative scientific investigative thing that had an alien organism in it that wiped out everyone in a town but two people and they're they're basically have taken these two people an infant and a old drunk and have put them in isolation these scientists in an underground facility trying to figure out 
that why this virus that literally crystallizes people's blood to kill them. I mean, it's bad, like world ending virus level, like against the clock. Why do these people survive? And even being aware that if anything even goes slightly wrong in this facility, the American government's just going to nuke the facility and the whole area just to, just to make sure that this thing is done. It's a fascinating setup, and if you're somebody who's deeply into procedural science type stuff, I think this still holds up to some level, but there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to be bored. Did you grow up with this movie? Uh, I did watch it when I was very young, and I remember genuinely really enjoying it, but it's been a super long time between then and just watching it recently. Yeah, it's considered, I, I you know, it's really considered like a sci-fi classic of that time period, and... I think I was surprised by that because of how dry it was. It is it is the prototypical outbreak movie, and we've seen a lot of movies kind of copy the template of, of Andromeda Strain. But I found that what didn't appeal to me, outside of uh, Dr. Levitt, who's kind of sardonic uh, and, and kind of livens up the film a little bit, most of the other characters um, were defined by what their jobs were, not so much by who they were as people. Yeah. Uh, and, and that lends a certain detachment and clinical feel to the movie that, you know, I just, it, I, it never, I, it feels like more of a fascinating uh, exercise than a film. Yeah, I never it never connected with me the way some older sci-fi classics have. You know, rediscovering, for instance, like uh, watching Soylent Green for the first time in the last couple of years. I'd never seen it before. Um, you know, going back to this one, though, it was like there's some interesting kind of, I think now what we would call Brian De Palma-esque, although this, this predates really the heyday of De Palma's career, but some De Palma-esque like cutaway type things um, that happen in the film that are, they're probably pretty visually interesting for the time. But, uh, but I found the film just detached, I mean, really clinical and really detached. And it, it, I, I don't know if part of that is because the movie's told in flashback because it opens with a hearing and then you get the events. I don't know if that neutered tension for me because I then kind of, there is some will-they-won't-they they involving the nuclear codes that I feel like doesn't play when you know that the beginning kind of opens with those characters alive. It's director Robert Wise, who was, uh, like, early on known for, like, won Academy Awards for uh, West Side Story and The Sound mm-hmm. of Music. He was known for much warmer. The haunting. He like, the haunting. he did The Haunting, which is a horror masterpiece, although somewhat unappreciated in its time, I would argue. But a lot of people compare this specifically to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which he made, which has the same complaints of it's a little separated from any sort of character warmth. It's very procedural. It's very into the science and not really into like us feeling anything from it. And I, I can totally see that. But I also am actually kind of a fan of Star Trek The Motion Picture, where I, I... I think what he's getting at scientifically is so fascinating that I find it interesting. It doesn't make it a good movie, this or that, but it's you can see why the source material is as good as it is. And the book of this is truly, really great and totally worth reading. Like many Crichton uh, novels that are better than the movies they're based on. I'm looking at you, Congo. <laughs> um I, I, I think I, on the whole, enjoy this, but I totally agree that it's super dry and yeah. only for, at this day and age, kind of for dedicated 
Crichton or hard sci-fi fans. But Arrow's releasing this as a brand new audio commentary uh, uh, by Brian Reisman, who goes through the biographical and production data. There's 28 minutes on a new strain of science fiction by the Kim Newman, who's quickly becoming one of my favorite like uh, film critics to see on camera, who's just kind of so enthusiastic and fun to listen to and like raving about what he likes about it. There's 30 minutes on making the film, which is the archival featurette. Uh, which is ported over from the 2001 DVD release, which has got a lot of interviews with Robert Wise, Nelson Gidding, and Michael Crichton. There's uh, 12 and a half minutes of a portrait of Michael Crichton, also a 2001 uh, a DVD uh, piece. There's a uh, the original uh, shooting script by Nelson Gidding is included here, along with the related illustrations and production designs that were here that you can go through. And then trailers, image galleries, and, uh, of course, an insert booklet as well. Uh, Arrow always puts together a solid production on whatever they do, whether you like it or not. There's no question they gave it everything you can give it. <laughs> That's true. Uh, next up is... Going into a very different style of film for the next several movies we're talking. Okay. So usually I try and round up these digital noises by going, like, ending up with something that we really like. Uh-huh. I think this one is going more towards just we're petering out towards the stuff that is not really that great, but is kind of fascinatingly horrible. And we're going to okay. start with the 27 Club. Oh, okay. Uh, right. You see where I'm coming from yeah. here, right? Uh, the 27 Club is something that I, th- I think anybody who even mildly likes conspiracies or modern-day mythologies is aware of. I mean, if you Google the 27 Club, it has its own Wikipedia page, which is not about the movie. It's about the idea that lots of famous people, like, burned out really young and coincidentally died at the age of 27. Lots, like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and what have you. Um, okay, that's obviously a a valid premise to build some sort of film around. And I'll tell you, MVD Visual, who's releasing this film, are unusually confident about the the strength of this. They got Todd Rundgren, who's certainly a legendary musician in and of himself, who did not die at 27, thankfully, to be a producer and, in fact, a, a weird sort of side character that ends up becoming somewhat embarrassingly nefarious as the movie goes along here. And they even included a soundtrack CD with this fucking thing. You know, this movie nobody has heard of. And they're like, yeah, bonus soundtrack CD. And I'm always like, wow, you guys are like, you spent the money for that. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. But why don't you tell us what the 27 club is about? It's about a documentary filmmaker who is, uh, uh, he, he wants to, um, research and study the 27 Club, and it kind of opens up this, um, this idea that it is, it, maybe it's tied to supernatural forces. Maybe there's more, uh, it all is not what it seems with the 27 Club. Um, and you know, you and I have watched a lot of these, like, no budget, shot on digital, horror movies, these kind of like DIY horror movies. And the the thing that we've come back to again and again is that there's certain things that are just free. Good writing is free and good acting is free. And I will say this about Room 27. I don't know that I found it particularly scary. I think some of the horror imagery in it is relatively strong, all things considered. That doesn't mean it's midsummer, but it's, yeah. you know, it's a step above other, it's peers. We've seen much worse. Yeah. 
And in this, I got to say, I found the writing, some of the writing was honestly kind of clever or funny. There were like, you know, it wasn't asinine writing. And it had competent acting. I actually don't disagree with you. And the only, the only, there's another thing in the movie that that could have gone really, really south for the movie. And other than two minor hiccups, there's all these interstitials with uh, mock interviews of people who died in the 27. That Club. did not work for me. It could have gone so much worse. Yeah, the Amy Winehouse was not great. And I'm sorry, but casting the wrestler John Morrison as Jim Morrison was a <laughs> Freaking terrible idea. Yeah. But the other ones, the Janis Joplin holds up well. The Cobain holds up pretty good. I still like they do the Most shadowy. The ones, they, they, but they held up better than I thought they would because they could have brought the movie to its knees. I, I, I will say the, the actress here who is uh, playing. All right. So the, the, the premise of the, the journalist is looking into this is partially because there's just been a brand new member of the 27 yeah. club and he's friends slash has a crush with on this girl wants to be a rocker, but has had no success at this at all played by the really notably charming Madison Carter. I, I found myself right going, who is that? And she's been in nothing but this sort of D grade level trash horror films. And I yeah. was like, wow, she's got a, what's it like, like, uh, uh, the character in the Marvel Netflix show, uh, uh, Jessica Jones, Kristen yeah. Ritter ishness to her, where you were like, wow, she's interesting and, and is quite good in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ends up sort of, finding herself in a position with she gets a hold of the book of contacting a demon that makes the deal to get all the celebrity and fame but at the cost of your soul and what have you and it i thought kind of lamely turns into a possession slasher film type thing but it's still i didn't see that coming i'll give it that i was like i really didn't think this is where this is going i mean it's not great but they're doing the best they can with it. They're not just dropping the ball. Like they're trying to make the gore look good. They're really trying hard to introduce new elements along the way. It's part of this movie. It just can't get past its budget. You yeah, know? I would say that's true. Um, but I, I do think it's okay. I, I, I didn't, I did not despise this as I suspected I might. And they really did put together a relatively solid package to go with this thing. I mean, Todd Rundgren, which according to the notes says, uh, this is his first theatrical film experience. I don't know if that's true or not, but he is obviously not an actor. Theatrical? Well, not theatrical. First act. First <laughs> I get, I get what you fictional mean. Right. film appearance. I, I think like... he's been in documentaries. But there's an interview with the Madison Carter. There's an interview with uh, the actor who played Jason, Derek Danicola. There's a slideshow, the trailer, and like I said, the full bonus CD. And it comes with a pretty nice Blu-ray package with a slipcover and everything. I was like, wow, they really spent some money on this thing. And I'm not sure I would have. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's okay, but let's not get carried away. From the same company, I thought was actually, although still nowhere near great, but I thought considerably better than this, was Room 37, The Mysterious Death of Johnny Thunders. And this might be because I come from kind of a punk rock background, and I find Johnny Thunders to be a fascinating and enigmatic guy who, indeed, there is a lot of mystery around his death. He was the, um, the one of the lead members of the proto- punk band, the New York Dolls, and he died in a situation of where people have 
called a lot of attention to over the years of how he died, that it was very mysterious. There's a lot of elements around it. Like it seemed like it was an overdose, but as time went on, they were like, there was a lot of fucked up shit around this that make it seem. And I don't mean in the sort of like crazy person, like look at like maybe Jimi Hendrix was murdered by the FBI. I mean, like really it was like, Oh wow, this is clearly couldn't have happened the way that like the New Orleans police said it did. Interestingly, died in a hotel, which I thought was made up for the movie, but true, called St. Peter's Hotel. And I was like, foreshadowing. (laughs) But that actually did in fact happen. So tastelessly, I admit, (laughs) they decided to make a fictionalized version of his story. And it is kind of tasteless to do this, to go like, what if we made a horror movie around it? The speculation. Yeah. So uh, apparently in real life, his methadone was stolen and he did go to somebody to get methadone, and that guy gave him a bunch of hallucinogenics. So this movie takes that and runs with the hallucinogenics and makes it where he's constantly seeing visions of demons and corpses and bathtubs and all kinds of sort of horror elements um, that kind of... That they try they, to They literalize the figurative demons. Yeah. They try to make it where, oh, he's... He's, uh, you know, he's being chased by his demons. So why don't we make those demons real? I, I think really, you know, and, and and it's the same kind of garish, oversaturated, high contrast digital look that um, the Twenty Seven Club has. Yeah, that kind of earmarks these low budget movies. But I a hundred percent agree with you on the just fantastic key performance in this movie. Oh my God, the guy who plays Johnny Thunder's Leo Ramsey. Yeah. This is one hell of a performance that deserves attention. Yeah, he's I, really good. I was like, I was kind of stunned by how good this actor was in this very tiny little movie where I'm like, somebody pay attention. I'm begging someone to pay attention and go like, this guy deserves to be in better stuff than this. I looked him up like halfway through watching because I thought surely he's been on TV or something like that. No. He's just done stuff like this. Yeah, He's exactly. just done no budget movies. Yeah. And, and like, gave this his all. Yeah. And even uh, musically, there's musical performances in here where he's like, wow, you're really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he gives this tortured performance throughout it that goes from funny to charming to creepy to just sad to scary. I was genuinely more entranced by him as an actor than I was by really any other aspect of this film because yeah. he holds the film together. Yeah, it is a it is a great performance in a just okay movie. Yeah. And I would I don't know if I like I, I don't know how many people out there are even that interested in Johnny Thunders anymore, mind you, um or, or like obsessed with the details around his somewhat mysterious death. I do still think it's a little tasteless to do this sort of like idea of like, oh, but what if type things around it and in order to sell it as a horror film, but there's no denying the strength of this performance. Yeah. And uh, this is another one that from that same company that also comes with the bonus CD, except this one I would argue is much more worth owning <laughs> with a lot of really cool Johnny Thunder's piece songs on it. Um, there's not, not really anything extra except for like trailers and the slideshow, but yeah, it was like strangely entrancing B movie. I, you know, it, it kind of it it follows tropes we've seen before the the last days of the strung out rocker 
feel very much like uh, like cinematic tropes that I, I feel like have been done to death. And the movie doesn't really do anything new in that regard. No. But, but again, it is one of those performances where, you know, I watched some interviews with Johnny Thunders um, after I watched the movie, and the it's a pretty... It's pretty spot on, and it's and it's seamless, and he really does become that character. He, he looks just good. like him too. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Our next one is another tasteless attempt to turn a real life story into a horror movie. Only this one is unforgivably bad, and that is the haunting of Sharon Tate. This, if we were to pick a absolute bottom of the stack this week, this would be my one for that. This movie stinks. It's so bad. Like wow. Like what were you thinking? level of bad and the whole problem says Sharon Tate if you don't know is like one of the people who was married murdered by the Manson family and and her most horribly of all she was pregnant and had her child cut out of her I mean it's just it's horrible and even today all these years later nobody wants to see a what if version of that story it feels still tasteless and insensitive and horrible and they got Hillary Duff to play her in the movie and I, and even weirdly, more weirdly, this is a what if movie. Like, this movie takes a turn. Uh, so, like, it based this whole idea of the fact that apparently Sharon Tate at one point had a premonition, however vague, of yeah. dying, or like four, several years before the actual killings happened. And so what? That means nothing, right? Like, what if she had the chance to turn her fate around? Right. And. And this has the thing where she keeps having like those waking nightmares that Manson or the Manson family are appearing and leaving things there before they actually did. Because there was nothing. One of the worst on-screen Charles Mansons of all time. Oh yeah, they were not being stalked by the Manson family. First off, the whole thing was an accident anyway because the Manson family was there to kill someone who didn't live there anymore. It's and- also one of those movies where when they're stalking, I remember. Uh, there's like a scene where somebody's like, there's people walking around outside. And one of the other characters is like, eh, just tell them to go away. Or I already told them to go away. And I was like, that's not how humans behave. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff like that in this where there's a scene where um, she's talking to this guy. And it was like, it was just the writing was so bad because it was like Wikipedia exposition dump where he's like, I'm just a boy from a small town who likes working on gadgets. And she replies, well, I'm just a small girl from Texas whose father was in the military and moved her around from place to place from ages, blah, blah, blah. And then we did this. And I was like, Oh my God. Like you literally just spit out Wikipedia information. (laughs) Um, as dialogue, like somebody went and looked up Sharon Tate and was like, how can I work some of these fun facts into her? It's, into her it's all that badly written. And she's not good at it. She's not good in it. And I want to give her really credit bad. only in the level that she's probably better than most of the other people Boy. in it who are just that level of bad, but she's not good. I just... This movie made me mad watching it. And not just because it was this tasteless, like cash in on the Tate murders, but that it's just that bad of a movie. It's poorly written. It's poorly directed. It's poorly acted. It's and fucking Lydia Hurst is in this. What the hell? It's not, it's not good. And it's from the director of the, uh, the girl next door, not the wonderful comedy one, but the, uh, the horrible true crime one. 
Uh, do you know what I'm talking no, about? What are you talking about? There's the uh, they made that movie, The Girl Next Door, about the girl that is held in the basement, and all the neighborhood kids come and like torture her. Uh-huh. Um, they made two film versions of the story. One was Girl Next Door, and the other one was called American Crime with uh, Catherine Keener and uh, oh gosh, what's her name from uh, Juno? Uh, Ellen Page. Oh, Ellen Page. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do see that the same guy made the Amityville murders, which was I've heard fucking that was terrible. And he's about to make, not even kidding you, a horror movie version of the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Cool. Well, he's found his niche. Yeah. <sighs> Exhausting, John. Exhausting. This guy needs to be put in movie jail. Yeah. Because it's just that level of bad and unforgivable. This is bad. Don't watch it. There's a little brief making of, but don't support the, don't do one of those. Oh, it's that bad. I got to see it. It's not, it's not amusing. It's not entertaining. Even in a B level, it's just dull and badly made. It doesn't have noticeable gore and it ends on that sort of, I mean, I'm okay. You ready? You don't want a spoiler? Then tune out now. Literally, it ends with everyone surviving the murders and then Sharon Tate realizing that this is an alternate universe that she's in. What if they had just been better at surviving the murders? What if they were better people and they had learned that they could have survived the murders if they had just tried harder? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> what the it's hell? Bad. All right, so we're moving to an older bad, or bad movie called Trapped Alive. I guess there's a certain amount of charm with older bad films, but I had a hard time finding any charms with Trapped Alive. I was fine with it. It's a, it's the kind of thing that I would have watched as a kid on USA Up All Night. Uh-huh. Uh, you know. And probably was the last time it was viewed. Yeah, it's like a group of ex-cons that kidnap some people, and they end up... I... I have trouble remembering the details of how they end up trapped in like a mine shaft with a cannibal. But. Yeah, they they like so like the girls are coming out of the rich dad's like house like we're from a party and they're like oh let's go party to a real party and not dad's party and along the way they end up accidentally getting stuck with a bunch of escaped prisoners yeah and then somehow the car crashes right in front of like the entrance to the mine shaft where the okay, only way yeah. out is through the mine shaft because the car is on fire up in there yeah and so they're trapped in a mine shaft and after an enormous amount of time, it's clear <laughs> there's some sort of crazy killer, like inbred, like mind killer in there. Mm-hmm. Like literally an enormous amount of time. <laughs> they're just trapped and bitching at each other. Yeah. For yeah, a long are. time. They are. And then there's the cop who's introduced later who is like just having sex with a local citizen. For a good portion of the first half of the oh, film. Oh, it's very trashy. It's, re- it's very trashy. Oh, it's, yeah. it's very late night cable. And it kind of, uh, you know, I, I do think there's an audience for it. I think there's an audience for this particular kind of like forgotten VHS junk. Um, it's total garbage, but it's garbage I liked. <laughs> there, there's always a certain degree of charm that just comes with age. Yeah. To some degree. I don't know why. Maybe 20 years from now we'll rewatch The Haunting of Sharon Tate and go, I don't know. It's just kind of charming. There's though. something about this one. It really did put me back in that place of being like 13 years old and staying up past my bedtime and watching USA. Like it really did kind of put me in that headspace. Uh, just the, the, 
fashions and the look of the film and the sleaziness of it. Like I it said, had boobs in it. The time, oh, there's a lot it. of yeah. boobs in it. Yeah. Um, it's just very, it's very late '80s, late night cable. It's interesting. The production company Windsor Lake Studios were trying to turn this entirely tiny Wisconsin town of Eagle River into a major filming hub, which no one thought was going to be a thing. But they went all in, bought an old Girl Scout camp. Um, and we're set it up to make it sort of like a repeat area that, that multiple films could be made on as their plan. Yeah. And it's very unclear whether or not any other movies were ever actually produced out of this deal, but that was the plan. They were very loud about it, like talking proudly and that we're going to make this town successful by doing it. It's going to be the second Hollywood. Have you seen our trap alive? <laughs> I'm not sure if it actually worked, but, um, Arrow's releasing this thing, and I guess there's a certain amount of charm that you felt more than I did. Uh, it It's there if you want to see it. Uh, Arrow, of course, put in some special features. There's 30 minutes called There's Evil Underground, uh, which interviews with the director and cinematographer, production manager, and some of the actors here. Um uh, interview with Hank Carlson, who was the makeup effects crew member. There's a documentary from Michigan Tonight, a television show uh, from 1988 that was talking about how excited they were about this brand new studio making their tiny town into like the next Hollywood. Uh, there's Lezek Brzezinski, the early years for 10 minutes, which is a writer and director talking about the start of his career. Um, uh, image gallery and believe it or not, three separate audio commentaries. Oh, there you go. That gives you plenty of reason to revisit it again and again and again. Oh boy. Somebody out here is going to love this as much as you do, John Golson. And you guys should I don't, be I don't best want to friends. oversell it. It's, it's junk. All right. Speaking of junk that I liked more than you did is Rondo. And I get why you backed out of Rondo rel- relatively quickly. I finished it, though. I oh, did, did you? Back, I did go back and finish it. Okay. So, Rondo is a modern-day release, and it's being very much sold as a modern cult classic. Uh, like, it's literally on the cover. A cult classic in the making, quote. And I get where they're coming from, because I'm not sure how else you're going to market this thing. They're making a modern sort of exploitation film Mm -hmm. and trying to do it in a modern way, but exploiting older tropes. It's art exploitation films. And this is in a way, very typical product for art exploitation who always are like, have these directors, young directors who are trying something that often harkens back to older things, but is doing it in a slightly new way. And it doesn't completely work. (laughs) <laughs> and I think Rondo is no exception. Uh, this particular, I, I guess the, the one review I'm looking at here right now from uh, rockshockpop.com describes it as genre bending, I guess. Uh, uh, it's about a, a veteran, a young veteran with PTSD who is guided through a dubious psychiatrist um, to go to a sex party in this kind of like seedy apartment, um, where it's an anything goes sex party, uh, where he witnesses a murder and then things get progressively twisty from there. I think, I think anything past that point starts to get kind of spoilery territory well, because there's just one drop after another of literally changing 
the entire context of the viewpoint character of the film. Yeah. The movie keeps repeatedly going, oh, no, don't worry about them. Now this is the main character. And I don't mean like in a Pulp Fiction-y sort of way. I mean like somebody that any normal movie would have been your protagonist because we spent that much time sheerly through their viewpoint is killed. And so then we move on to the next one. And you're like, what is happening right now? And the movie tries to go – it has a cascade of – really sleazy characters and sleazy scenarios that ultimately lead up to like a revenge film that I think thinks it's John Wooish. I'm not sure. I also think it thinks that it's uh feminist and I don't know that I think that either. <laughs> I, I I well I think I, I know that they think that. Yeah, they think that. Uh, I, I actually find it really kind of weird towards women. I actually find it kind of weird towards black men as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it is, a, it, I found it conf- a confounding, frustrating watch that ultimately when the credits rolled, I was sort of like, what was the point of all that? And it, it has little stylistic flourishes that hint at, something more like there's some seed or kernel of talent or working idea or raw material. There was part of me that wondered if it would be better as like a novel or a short story. But when, but again, when the credits rolled, I was just like, like why ultimately it felt like a really pointless exercise uh, by the time I was done with it. Well, I think we're more or less on the same page. I found this frustrating and aggravating and even at points made me a little angry, but there's enough here that was kind of different and unusual and surprising that I kept going, I'm not going to shut this off. I'm going to keep watching it. I I really can't, I really want to point out how much I thought the music was great in this. Mm -hmm. Like I kept coming back to, wow, this is a great score. It's really interesting and, like, keeps surprising you and doing stuff that was, like, like the only person out of this whole film I would want to talk to are the people who did the score, which is Ryan Franks and Scott Nicolay. Um, it's fascinating. And I'm like, why aren't y'all doing better movies than this? I mean, everybody's got to get their start somewhere, but they're so good that... I was a little... I almost felt embarrassed watching it that guys this good were scoring a movie this... I don't know what. Yeah. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, too, about, like, I actually felt like the... I felt like the actors are were, were competent to good. I felt like the writing... Some of the voiceover narration stuff uh, gave it an odd kind of... That and the cursive font for every, all the titles gave yeah. it, like, an unusual, like... Wes Anderson feel, even though the movie is, like, not that... Well, it's that weird um, mishmash of so many different influences that don't fit together organically at all. It feels like, in a way, sort of a first draft of something that would have been better, like, really excellent by the third or fourth draft. And I wouldn't discount this filmmaker again. Like, if if somebody said, oh, this is his follow-up to Rondo, I might be interested in watching it, because I, I do feel like the voice that I watched make Rondo felt incredibly immature to me in a lot of ways that with some with it with some maturity and with some more filmmaking under his belt it was a ballsy like not his first film yeah the, but- ballsy's right there's like a there's kind of a there's kind of a confidence to it um where it's sort of like you know 
somebody kind of applying what they feel. I, I would not be surprised to find that if I had a conversation with this guy, that he would think of himself as like a real auteur type. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because it's it's very distinctly, I think even the last credit is not like directed by, it's like you just watched a film by V and then it has his name or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much of that is like pretense or like him trying to be funny, but I have a feeling it's not. I have a feeling that he that he is like... Already envisioning himself as having a distinct cinematic worldview. Yes, this is directed by a guy named Drew Barnhart who feels like, uh, like this is his Boondock Saints, except nobody's going to see it. Yeah, <laughs> where you won't have a chance to have a documentary made about what an asshole he is. <laughs> I don't know if he's an asshole. I'm just like speculating, but that's kind of an asshole move. You're like, yeah, come on, man. Yeah, you, you don't get to do that until you've had a unquestionable hit. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. And Rondo is not an unquestionable head. But I, I I guess on some degree I agree that like for some people this is gonna be a cult classic if for no other reason that is just you never really seen anything like it at a, a whole, but you've seen all the parts. Yeah, I can elsewhere. See uh, well, that's it for this week's digital noise. I want to thank John Golson as always. Wait, what was your pick me. of the week? Oh uh, man, do I have to pick one? You, I picked one. The Haunting of Sharon Tate. No, I'm uh, just there kidding. we go. You know it's not the Haunting of Sharon Tate. You know what? I'll go with you for Swing Kids. Fuck it. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a a weird, unusual little film that is not going to be to everyone's taste, but it's definitely the most surprising. You should check it out and see if it's your movie. Yeah. that we have on the list. It's it's there's nothing else like it out there, and it's deeply entertaining. Yeah, <laughs> as well as weirdly bloody at points. Mm-hmm. Uh, that too. Yeah. Uh, but so we'll, I'll be back soon with Aaron, who's joining me with uh, another big stack of movies. In the meantime, you can uh, check out John Golson. If you're in Austin, you can go, of course, go see a show that we started off our show by talking about. The 27th at 8 p.m. at Fallout Theater. Okay. So this will be up before then. So if you're in Austin, that's Thursday, this coming Thursday. Go see it. Uh, I will, I will be doing my damn just to be there myself. Um, and then, of course, you're always doing other like stuff. I am. I'm actually about to join a troupe. Uh, I'll be performing with Chesterfield, which is a sketch comedy troupe at Cold Town. I haven't done a lot at Cold Town, but uh, I'll be with Chesterfield at Cold Town starting, I think, with the July show. I'll be working with them. Nice. And uh, Digital Noise will be back, as always. Thanks for listening.